we were just sitting side by side on the edge of her bed. And she looked at me and she said, I hoped I'd die before I ever had to tell you this, but your dad isn't your father. And I can tell you, Lily, time just stopped. Hello, you are listening to NPE Stories. This is a podcast where NPEs can share their story. I am your host, Lily, and I found out I was an NPE through an Ancestry DNA test that changed my life forever. NPE is a term that stands for not parent expected or non-paternal event. This means that one or more of our parents are not who we believe them to be. NPE Stories is a podcast where NPEs can share their story of what their original family was like, how they found out they were an NPE, and what their journey has been like since the day they found out. Welcome to episode 171. And today I am speaking with Joan. Hi, Joan. Hi, how are you, Lily? I'm good. I'm so glad I'm speaking with you today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. I am glad to be here and am a longtime follower of your podcast. They have been tremendously helpful to me. Oh. And I hope this is some sort of an encouragement to others who are also on the path. And I want to mention right from the beginning, because listeners are often curious about this, but you identify as an NPE who is a late discovery donor conceived person, correct? Yes, that's correct. We haven't had one of these stories in a while. So thank you for waiting. And I'm so interested to hear your story and what you've been through the last five years. <laughs> it's It's been a journey. It's been a journey. <laughs> it's been a journey. It's still a journey. I have no idea how it's going to end up, but uh, it's it's been something like all of us. Um, we never expected or wanted to be in this situation, and yet here we are. But I am glad that there is a community of people that understand. And um, it just blows me away that there are so many of us. Uh, the groups keep growing, and you've got plenty of people for podcasts. And I thought I was the only person in this situation for the first two years or better that after I found out. So it's just, it's all just something you never expect and don't want to be part of. But I'm, I'm glad that you and others who can encourage us or at least provide us with information, with contacts and thoughts from other people going through it. I'm glad that you're there. So thank you. My name is Joan and... I'm 67 now, and I found out about my NPE event status story. I don't even know how you call that. In 2019, when I was 62, I was born in Orlando, Florida in 1956, and the hospital at that time was called Florida Sanitarium and Hospital. It's under a different name now. I was raised as the only child of my parents, and they had been married almost six years before I was born. And as I tell my story, I'll call dad, uh, my 
my dad. He is my BCF, but he is absolutely my dad. Uh, He passed away 18 years ago at the age of 86, and neither he nor I ever knew about any of this. This was all my mom's secret. Mom is still living. She's 98, and she has increasing dementia. Um, If I ask her about any of this now, she just shakes her head and she can't remember. So my window has closed to be able to even find out any more small pieces of the puzzle from her. And that makes me sad, but, you know, there's nothing you can do. Uh, I call my biological father my BF in the story, or I'll refer to him sometimes as my bio dad, or I will sometimes call him John. Um, He died in 1965 at the age of 54. And as far as I know, I never met him other than the day I was born. And I'll tell you about that. My parents were married in 1950, so some background on them. Mom was 25, dad was 31, and it was their only marriage. Dad was a Navy veteran of World War II. He served four years, mainly in the Pacific, and he was a ladies' man. I don't think he made any bones about that. I mean, he was he was not arrogant or narcissistic. He just... He was a very handsome man. He loved to dance. He was, he never met a stranger as far as, you know, stand in line at a store. He'd talk to people. Um, he liked people. And he dated a whole lot. But from everything I could ever tell, all of that happened before he and mom started dating. And once he met mom and, and they started dating, they were married within six months. And Dad just was, he just was, he loved mom and they were very committed to each other. They were married uh, for 55 years before he died. After they were married, they bought a little house in Orlando with dad's VA benefits. And that was the home where I came home from the hospital and I lived there through high school. Um, And it was in a great little neighborhood in Orlando before Disney, before the town got huge. Um, It was a great place to grow up, and I have really good memories of growing up there. My folks were happy. They'd bicker sometimes, but that was kind of rare. Um, They were born, they were both born around the 1920s, and they were raised during the Depression. And so, like most people from that generation, they didn't talk about feelings. They didn't talk about their feelings or anybody else's. They weren't demonstrative, but I knew they loved me, and I could tell they loved each other. Their idea of being demonstrative was writing, I love you, on an anniversary card, or dad bringing flowers to mom. You know, so pretty pretty staid, but sweet. Every now and then, though, dad would smile and start singing the song to mom that had been one of their wedding songs. He would sing, It Had to Be You. And he'd get this funny little grin on his face, and he'd sing a a little bit of it, and it would always make mom smile. So my impression always was that they just were committed. They loved one another, and once they met each other, they never looked at anybody else, and 
And it was that way until they died, until dad died. In our family photo albums, they always are smiling and, you know, baby pictures with me, big smiles. They look proud. Lots of pictures of mom and dad and me individually and together. It just looked like a normal family. I had a good childhood doing things with them. They each taught me stuff. I always joked that I was mom's girl and dad's boy. I'm a good cook, and I still love mowing the yard. I prefer, you know, I've just asked my husband, honey, let me do it because I enjoy it. I don't know why, but I think it just evokes a good memory of learning how to do that with my dad and just the smell of the grass and um, sitting and drinking some cold water when we were through. That was that was how dad relaxed, was out in the yard doing whatever kinds of outdoor landscaping stuff, and I learned to do it too. They both worked full-time. Mom started working right out of high school, and she worked during World War II at one of the bases uh, as a secretary. And then when the war was over, she started working in an office. And eventually, uh, they they both put in almost 40 years with their respective companies, and they retired after almost 40 years of work. So steady, I guess just steady. We didn't have a lot. I, I was always aware the budget was tight, but we had enough. We spent a lot of time with our extended family on both sides, and vacations usually had to do with us going places with family or going to the families and hanging out, and that was always fun. There was one thing about my mom that I have credited her with since, I don't know, years and years, but I've realized that she always had this automatic ability to look for options when something didn't work out the way she or maybe my dad or I had wanted or planned. If, If somebody said, I can't do that or you can't do that, her immediate reaction was to look for plan B. And that, I think, is maybe the crux of the story for me. It makes me laugh when I think about it, but it also just takes my breath away. My parents were older when I was born. Mom was nearly 31 and Dad was 37. Mom always told me that they really wanted children, but there hadn't been any pregnancies. She didn't seem to have any idea why. I. She never said they talked about it, but they must have. Long after I was born, mom thought she might be pregnant again. And I remember her asking me how I'd feel about having a baby brother or sister. And she was excited. She waited by the phone, waited for the doctor's office to call. And this is in the 60s. So it took a few days. But I remember she was home that afternoon that the call was due. And she sat next to the phone, you know, back in the day when the there was the couch and the phone table and, and the phone sat right there. And if you were going to be on the phone, that's where you were sitting. And I remember the call. She was disappointed. I could see it in her face when she learned that she wasn't pregnant. And she was in her 40s by then. And I was maybe 12 years old or thereabouts. And instead of being pregnant, she had evidently begun menopause or was perimenopausal. But I just remember how excited she was that maybe there was another baby. Uh, I always thought I didn't look like dad. 
and I didn't. Dad was very dark-haired and dark-eyed. Uh, his eyes were so dark brown, they were almost black, and he had very dark brown, almost black hair. Uh, I have fair hair, very fair skin, and really light blue-gray-green eyes. But mom has gray eyes, and she's she and her whole family are fair-skinned redheads, and everybody has blue eyes except mom. So I just thought, okay, recessive genes. Uh, I didn't think I looked like my mom either. Um, when I was a baby, the pictures of me, I was toe-headed. I had that white blonde hair that some kids get. And my dad's pictures, he was dark-haired. But mom was just as toe-headed. She went to red later. And then a couple of her sisters were toe-headed. So when I saw the pictures again, I just thought, okay, so more recessive genes or mom's genes winning. But it, you know, I didn't question it. It made sense. It fit, sort of. My dad was an only child of his parents, because when he was about 11 months old, his father died in the Spanish flu epidemic. Uh, Dad was named after his father. I was named after his grandmother, dad's grandmother. And our son is named after my dad. So we've always tried to keep a continuity in there. Um, It's a family tradition, and we continued it. My dad's mom reminisced often about my grandfather, and she doted on my dad. It meant a lot to her that I was her grandchild and that someone was carrying on the family line. And she loved me, and I loved her. She taught me all kinds of things, and I have wonderful memories of her. Uh, My grandmother passed before our children were born, but I always have thought how happy she would be to know that uh, her son, her beloved son, had grandchildren, and to to watch those grandchildren grow up would have been a great joy for her. Dad was very family-oriented, mom and dad both, but daddy particularly loved family. He loved his family. He loved our family. He loved being a grandfather, and he always enjoyed being with extended family, whether mom's or his. He was a good dad. He was a good father-in-law with my husband, and he was a wonderful granddad. So obviously, I think you could probably say I'm a dad's girl. Uh, We were close. So I found out about all of this in early 2019. Our daughter, unbeknownst to me, took a 23andMe DNA test just to learn ethnicity. And she told me about it when the results came in, and we were just all over those results. It was so much fun seeing where all different parts of the family came from. And I thought, okay, let me also do this. So I ordered a test, and I told my daughter, it's like, I'm going to order a test for mom and see if I can get her to take one, because wouldn't it be cool to have three generations on 23 and see how that compares. So I ordered it. And when my test came in in February, I spit in my tube and sent it in. And then I took mom's test to her and asked her to do the same thing. She was 93 then. 
and her dementia was mild but progressing. Sometimes, you know, she couldn't necessarily remember stuff, but mostly she was pretty sharp. It really just kind of depended on the conversation or what was going on. But I sat on the edge of her bed and I showed her this and I told her what I was doing. Hey, mom, let's do this. Wouldn't it be fun if we had three generations of DNA to compare? And then, you know, your sisters and your nieces and nephews will have your information too and all be connected. And won't that be cool? Well, mom got really quiet. And I was expecting her to push back or say no, because I thought she might say she was worried about Big Brother having her DNA and knowing too much about her. That would that was the one thing that I thought might cause her to say no. Well, I just sat there and waited. She didn't say no, but I just did not expect what she told me. She just sat there and she looked at me. We were just sitting side by side on the edge of her bed. And she looked at me and she said, I hoped I'd die before I ever had to tell you this, but your dad isn't your father. And I can tell you, Lily, time just stopped. My world tilted. I get really tired of the term paradigm shift, but I felt like, okay, if ever there was a paradigm shift, this is my new reality. And my world just, just went upside down. Everything was in slow motion. My head felt like it was full of cotton. I just felt like I was outside my body watching and observing mom and whatever voice I was using was coming from somewhere else. It was, it was, it's seared into my memory, this entire conversation. So then she continued, just didn't miss a beat. She continued, your father is Dr. Marsh. And I thought, who? Dr. Marsh? What? And then little bell went off in my head. And I asked her, you mean the Dr. Marsh who signed my birth certificate? I'd seen it lots of times. She had it in a baby book in my bedroom as I was growing up. And she had talked about the doctor from time to time. So the name was a little familiar. And so when I asked, you mean that Dr. Marsh? She said, yes, just real matter of fact. And she smiled, you're a doctor's daughter. And then I thought about it a minute and I'm like, mom, did he assault you? And she said, no. And she actually shuddered at the thought of that. And I felt like she was telling the truth. Mom wasn't somebody to make things up. She didn't exaggerate. She didn't make things up. And she lived in the real world. You know, she was just whatever she told you was true. So I thought about that a minute. Then I asked, did you have an affair with him? And she said no and had the same reaction. So then I asked, well, what happened? And she said, well, you know, your dad had a lot of girlfriends when he was in the Navy and before he met me, before we got married. And so he was sterile. Okay. Mom, how did you know that? And she said, well, Dr. Marsh tested your dad's sperm and it was sterile. Well, so then what happened? And she said, Dr. Marsh said he could help me with that. And 
I swear my jaw just dropped. And so I said, what did he do? And evidently mom consented because she said he went into his office and then he came back out and put some sperm in me. She was matter of fact as she could be. And I asked her, did you have sex? And she said vehemently, no. Like that'd be the last thing on earth she would ever do. And knowing my mom, it would be. So I have no idea what's going on at this point. I have no idea what she's going to tell me. So I said, well, how did he put sperm inside of you? And she said, well, he had a long stick and she motioned with her hands about the length of a long swab and he put it up inside of me. And I just sat there and I'm speechless. And my body is not connected to the ground or the bed or any place else. I'm just speechless. So she said, or I asked her, you know, after I could think of what to ask, Mom, how many times did you do this? How many months? And she thought a minute and she said, well, two or three. And so I thought, okay. So she, she got pregnant, you know, with two or three single attempts like that. She got pregnant after five years of being married to my dad and never being pregnant. So... It made me realize a few years before I thought about, okay, well, I was born exactly nine months after their fifth wedding anniversary. And I always just thought that was kind of cute, you know? Okay, so they celebrated and finally conceived. And I thought that was a happy story. And as I sat here on the bed next to my mom, I just realized, okay, I was conceived instead by artificial insemination of a donor sometime in late July or August of 1955 in the exam room of my mom's OBGYN with her consent. And I had grown up driving by or riding by that doctor's office many times. It was on the way to my mom's office And whenever I'd be in the car, you know, she'd point out that's Dr. Marsh's office where she used to go. She told me later she had changed doctors as soon as I was born. Um, But I know exactly, and I've seen pictures of the office from the newspaper, and I know exactly where it was. So it's like this little private office just down the road from the hospital, and that's where I was conceived. So all of this is going through my mind. And so I then asked, did dad ever know? Because I thought he had to have known. And she, again, no, vehemently. And so I asked, did you tell granny? Did you tell anyone? Did you tell Aunt Lois? Aunt Lois was her older sister who was her main confidant. And I thought she had to have told either granny or Aunt Lois. But she didn't. She didn't tell anybody. She never told a soul. So I, she, she finally, she spit in the tube, took a while. She had dry mouth and, but I collected the sample and I left. I cried. I drove home and I just started trying to deal with, you know, I'm not dad's child. I'm not my dad's biological child. And my whole story now is gone. I'm not the only child of an only child. These grandparents 
whose memory I treasure are not my grandparents. My photo albums are full of people I'm not related to. My family history is gone. So I started remembering stories of my birth. I got home and I'm thinking about all of that. And I remember mom saying that she had labored for 36 hours. I was a breech baby. And uh, 1956, they just pretty much, I guess, let, at least in modern hospitals, they let uh, women labor. But my maternal grandmother, mom's mom, had been a midwife for decades and delivered many, many children in the area where she lived. But that was hours and hours away. So she wasn't there. And I remember her later being so angry when mom told how long she was in labor because granny always said she could have turned me sooner so that mom wouldn't have to labor so long and have such a hard time. So finally, the doctor used forceps and I was born. And my first photo shows bruise marks on my cheeks from the forceps. I remember dad talking about it, saying how he waited all that time in the father's waiting room, smoking cigars with the rest of the expectant dads. And I remember mom saying dad was a nervous wreck, worrying that something would happen to her or to me. When I was finally born, I remember dad saying that the doctor came into the father's waiting room and said, congratulations, you have a girl. And he shook dad's hand. Dad's eyes always sparkled and he always smiled when he told that story. But then it hit me. My birth father delivered me. He was the first person to congratulate my dad. He signed my birth certificate. My dad's name is on my birth certificate as my father. And the doctor signed my birth certificate, but when he delivered me, when he announced me to my dad, when he shook my dad's hand, and when he signed that birth certificate, he knew the whole time that I was his child. Uh, I did notice that mom seemed ashamed when she was talking to me, but she also seemed almost relieved. And she did tell me that she had changed doctors as soon as I was born. And she asked me to promise not to tell a soul. And I promised, but I couldn't keep that promise. Because when I got home, I told my husband right away, we've been married almost 44 years, and he was the first person I wanted to tell. And so then I dove into my genealogy files, and I dove into the internet, and I couldn't think about anything else for days. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't read. I'm an avid reader. I could not read. I could not concentrate. I couldn't watch television. And the next couple of years were just an emotional tsunami. I just don't know how else to describe it. I was furious with the doctor, with my mom. I couldn't understand this kind of betrayal because that's what it felt like to me. I, I remembered that mom always was looking for options when she'd hit a closed door or a brick wall. They wanted a child, and she found a way. And I, I could see it sort of from her point of view, but I couldn't, I couldn't understand how she could do that to dad. It would have broken his heart 
But I remember mom telling me over the years, too, that she'd tried to talk dad into adopting and almost had him convinced. So, you know, somewhere along the way, they realized that they weren't able to have kids or they weren't having any. And she was looking for another way and adoption seemed possible. But my paternal grandmother dissuaded dad. Dad talked to her about it. He talked to my grandmother about everything. And she said the common thinking back then, which is horrible and irrational, but she said what what we heard back then, you never know what kind of problems you're getting. It could be a criminal's child. And dad decided, no, he couldn't adopt. And my apologies right here for all adopted children because that is a horrible and irrational belief. And I I just can't even imagine. So I, I believe dad never knew. I believe he never suspected. As much as I know he loved and adored mom, I am sure he would have divorced her for this kind of a betrayal had he ever known. And even though he loved me, and he he did. He was he loved me. He was proud of me. But that would have been the end of our relationship, even though that would have destroyed him. But he could not have continued in a relationship with someone else's child and knowing that he was sterile. So that part, that part especially is still really painful. And it broke my heart for dad. And it breaks my heart for me, too, because just that kind of betrayal, just even though I understand it from mom's point of view, I I just don't know how she could do it. If he was still alive, I would never tell him. So on my birth certificate, dad's name is my father. Birth certificate is signed by my, my biological father, like I said. Um. And during my research, I found other documents signed by my BF, and the signatures are the same. I made a timeline of his life, where he was born, where he went to school, where he did his residencies, his marriages, his death in Orlando in 1965. I wanted to know why he died. He was only 54, so I ordered his death certificate and found out he died of colon cancer. Well, so then there's a medical history, things I need to know, things I thought I did know, but none of that is real. My dad, for instance, had a family history of thrombosis that had affected three generations of his family that I knew of, and I had waited for years for that shoe to drop in my life. Dad suffered with poor circulation and lots of blood clots from the age of 38 forward until he died. And he died from complications of vascular dementia when he was 86. His last year was a doozy because dementia just changed his personality completely. He was different. He was violent. He was paranoid. He was a sundowner. He would strike at my mom with full soda bottles when her back was turned. And I finally had to have him live in an assisted living facility and intervene because he he would have killed her and it would have broken his heart had he been in his right mind because he would never have done that to her. But 
the vascular dementia, again, the vascular problems just were rampant in his life. And so I was in my 50s and thinking, man, I had lucked out. Maybe I wasn't going to have this problem that dad had such a hard time with. And his mother had, and his grandmother had, and one of his great uncles had died young with a blood clot that has gone had gone through his heart. And dad had had some situations like that as well. So I'm in my 50s. Nothing's happened. I'm thinking I've dodged a bullet. And all of a sudden now I know that that's not even something I need to worry about anymore. But Now I don't know what my medical history is. So I ordered my grandparents' death certificates to try and get some answers. But that is still all I have. Um, For my paternal family, I learned during my early research, I had a half-sister who was also born at the same hospital in Orlando in 1954. She's two years older than me. And I found her birth announcement in the same newspaper that mine was in. And they looked just the same. So weird. Her mom divorced the doctor the year I was born and then left the state with my sister. And I looked for a long time and could never find any more information. So my mom might be a secret keeper, but I'm a seeker. And Lily, you've brought that up before. Some people are secret keepers and some people are seekers, but I want the truth. And so I searched for every scrap of information I could find about my paternal family. I was angry, and I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. As far as I knew, I was the only one who had a story like this. It was unique, and I didn't know what to do with it. It was overwhelming sometimes. I did tell my closest friend after a couple of weeks, and then more than a year later, I told my daughter and my sister-in-law. And I left my DNA information up on 23andMe just to see what might happen next. And in early 2020, I submitted my ancestry, my DNA to Ancestry, because I just thought, well, maybe maybe I'll learn some more. So it paid off because soon after receiving my Ancestry DNA results, I got a message from someone asking how we were connected. And he turned out to be a first cousin once removed. My birth father had five adult siblings, and I later learned... I had a lot of relatives on the paternal side. A lot of them have tested, but this is the one that's reached out and talked to me. And I began a tentative and very guarded email relationship conversation with this cousin, Rob, who lives across the country from me. And I really am glad I did because he has been extremely kind and gracious through the years. And it's taken a long time, but we have built a relationship, and I enjoy talking to him. Um, We email regularly. We have phone conversations. We share photos and newspaper articles. He is an avid genealogist, and he's a natural teacher. He's always happy to answer questions and teach me about centimorgans and stuff that I had no idea about. And we enjoy sharing our finds with each other. And he really has filled in a whole lot of blanks regarding our family. Uh, And that right there, that word our, that is a huge indicator of how this has evolved for me over the years. Because in the beginning, the first couple of years, I wanted nothing to do with any of it. Uh, And I just was trying to process. But now I 
have accepted the fact that, okay, I have a dad. My dad who raised me is my dad. But I also have paternal family that I don't know and some I'll never know who have had an influence, at least genetically, on me. And I consider them my family. I consider Rob my family. So when we're looking for records together or talking about it, this is our family. And so that's a huge change and a lot of progress for me. And it's taken time, but I'm glad to finally be at that place. I recently asked Rob if any of the older family might have any videos of my BF, because videos were around, at least in the early 60s. It turns out Rob had some, and a couple of weeks ago, we Zoomed for the first time so he could show me videos and narrate. And the videos were from the 50s and 60s, so there's no sound. And the earliest video was black and white, and the last one was in the old faded color faded colors of the early 60s. You remember how faded everything looked. And that one was taken the year my BF died. So I was able to see him at about 53 years of age, throwing snowballs and laughing silently, of course, with family members that were in the snowball fight. And it was a lot of fun to watch. It was brief, but it was fun. And it was incredible. It was a real treasure. And in the middle of that, Rob noticed that my BF threw snowballs with his left hand. He's like, oh, look, you know, John's throwing with his left hand. And it, it occurred to me, our daughter throws softballs with her left hand. It's the only thing she does left-handed, but she throws with her left hand. And then a few frames later, my BF made this face where he was concentrating and winding up his pitch for the snowball. And I got goosebumps because I've seen that face on my son when he's doing similar things. And I asked Rob, stop the video. Can you stop it? I just, I'm looking at my son. And so he did. And I took some screenshots and I carry those on my phone because that is my birth father. And that is my son all rolled up into one face, throwing a left-handed snowball, which there's my daughter. So... In that video, I could also see that my birth father was short-waisted, and I always, always wondered where that came from for me. I am the only short-waisted person in my extended family, and I always thought it was just another recessive gene and that I had a lot of those. Um, I learned that my BF was blue-eyed. I got that off of the death certificate, and so now I know why I don't have dad's brown eyes. Um, I still struggle with the whole genetic mirroring and genetic identity thing. For the first couple of years, I kept looking in the mirror, wondering who I look like. And I still don't look like my BF, or at least I don't think so. But my son does in younger photos. So I see the connection. I eventually found some information about my half-sister, and I looked her up on Facebook. And she also lives across the country from me. And I got so excited. I have a sister. I have an I have nieces. I'm an aunt. I'm a great aunt. It was just wild. So last year, I finally wrote that first letter and introduced myself to her. I took a long time to do that. Uh, I did not want to interfere in her life or cause her any kind of upheaval like I had been through. 
And I didn't know what she might know, but I didn't imagine she knew about me. So I included some pictures and a copy of my birth certificate with her dad's signature on it. And after I mailed it, I just held my breath and hoped and prayed I'd get some kind of response. So I was thrilled when a week or so later, my oldest niece messaged me and let me know that my letter and photos had arrived at her mom's. And my niece read them while she was visiting her mom. And my niece was really kind and gracious and sweet and very welcoming. And it really meant a lot to me. And she thought, she said she thought her mom might be able to connect with me before too long. Um, She also asked me about another woman who had reached out to my sister in the mid-90s saying the doctor was her father. My niece asked if that had been me, but I told her no because I didn't know anything about this until 2019, and I still don't know who that person was from the 90s. But as it has turned out, a few months have gone by, and the history between my sister's mom and our birth father was difficult, and she hasn't been able to respond to me, and I get that. We have no shared memories or experiences. I'm a stranger, and I've met her under difficult circumstances, introduced myself under difficult circumstances. My BF was married to her mom at the time of my mom's artificial insemination, and I was born while he was still married, though I don't know if his wife ever knew anything about it. And so my niece and I have connected on Facebook and messaged some, and I had hoped that eventually she might be okay to take a DNA test if I sent her one. Um, I would love to have a direct confirmed connection to my birth father. There isn't anybody else whose DNA connects to him that I can connect to other than brothers and sister. But when I asked her about it, she was okay. She's like, yeah, I'll do that. And so I ordered a test and I had it sent to her. But a couple months went by and, you know, I'm holding my breath thinking any day now I'll get that ding and those results will be in and she'll tell me. But when I ask her about it eventually, she's like, no, it's still here. And I want to talk to my mom about it when I go visit at Easter. So I'm like, okay, fine. You know, no problem. I get that. And Easter came and went. And next time we talked, she had said she just, she really couldn't do it. Um, and that she had explained later. And we, we really have not communicated. I haven't heard from her since. And I, I keep hoping that one day I will. So I get that. You know, it took me years before I could contact them, and it may take them years to do the same. They may never be able to. I don't know. I understand either way. I'm okay with it. I would love to see my sister and her family. I'd love to talk to them on FaceTime or Zoom. But for some reason, I just, I have a great joy knowing that they're there. And what they do with the information now is something they have to decide. Truly do understand that. My niece did send some pictures of her mom and they are priceless to me. My sister and I look a lot alike in our earlier years. Our high school graduation photos are very similar and we only graduated two years apart. So there's a a style similarity, but also there's our faces are similar. 
It's the first time I'd ever seen a reflection of myself in anyone else. And there's something healing about that. In January of last year, my cousin Rob told me there were Facebook groups for people who had DNA surprises. And it had been almost three years after I'd learned that I was donor conceived. And I still imagine this was unique. So Rob suggested I do a Google search with a term like, my dad isn't my dad. I don't know why I never thought about it before, but it never entered my mind. And sure enough, I found the term NPE and then several private Facebook groups. And it's been really healing to read people's stories and listen to podcasts. And Lily, I've been most helped by your podcast. They really are very healing to me. I've listened to every one of them, sometimes multiple times. In episode 89, Jamie's story, and episode 64, Cassandra, uh, those were extremely helpful to me because they both are donor-conceived. Jamie was donor-conceived in the 50s, and she was able to talk to her BF, the doctor, when he was 104 years old, and he was still sharp. So thankfully, she was able to get a description of what the early decades regarding donor practices were. And I don't remember if it was the doctor or Jamie, but somebody described it as the Wild West of of donor practice. And that's how I refer to it, too. I mean, there were just... There were no rules, no records, no nothing. I am lucky. I look at it as I am lucky that my mom knew what happened, agreed to what happened. She she consented. She knew it was the doctor's sperm. And 62 years later, when she finally told me about it, she knew without a doubt he was my dad. That's very different from so many donor stories and so many stories, period. But back in the 50s and the 40s, when all of this really was going on and doctors and medical students were being asked to donate or paying their way through college with donations or whatever, it was just, it was the Wild West. So I keep still wondering about other siblings. I Imagine that my BF donated for more than just my mom. I can't imagine that was his one and done, but I don't know that. And I keep hoping I'll have a sibling show up in my DNA records. I don't know why I hope that. It can be a Pandora's box. Maybe I should leave well enough alone. I don't know. Um, My BF was in his medical field from the 40s forward into the mid-1960s, so there's a large time frame there, and I truly believe that I'll never know how many siblings I had or have, because some have either passed by now, some never knew, Um, and, you know, if they were too old or the DNA tests weren't around, they'd have never known anyway. I wouldn't have known without all of the DNA tests for fun, bringing this whole thing to light. But uh, some of my siblings could be in their 90s, and they're just probably not going to do a DNA test anyway. But you know how it is. Every time that little notification on 23 or Ancestry lets me know there are updates, I click and I hope, because who knows, maybe one day. 
So, Lily, I want to thank you so much for hosting and producing NPE Stories. Every story helps somehow with processing, and I get shivers sometimes when I listen. I am truly part of the Fellowship of the Nodding Heads. I told you earlier, Mm -hmm. I am a card-carrying member of the Fellowship of the Nodding Heads. You can hear me nod. Uh, I've used a lot of the resources mentioned on the podcast, too, and on the private groups. And now I can recommend them to others who ask when they begin their NPE journey. And my heart goes out to every single person who ends up on this road with us. After learning I could email Right to Know for a directory of therapists in my state who specialize in trauma and NPE situations, I found an excellent therapist. That was another resource that I learned about. And that was tremendously helpful because I had talked to a therapist who had never heard the term before. I introduced it to her. And that was a useless hour session. And I never went back. But um, being able to reach out to write to know, and I simply filled out the form and said, you know, I'd like information for therapists in my state. Then the next day I got a list and I went down that list and I found someone and she, I've been talking to her now going on a year and she is herself an NPE and she gets it. Uh, We talk about genealogical bewilderment. We talk about disenfranchised grief, the things that I deal with now. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall and just observed my birth father when he was alive. And while I'm grateful for my life, what kind of man was he? I mean, what kind of person was he? I'll never know. I mourn the loss of family I never knew. And... Recently, I silently wished my birth father a happy birthday this year, and it felt strange. But it's all so interconnected now that it's father and birth father, dad. Got these two men who are responsible for my life and my upbringing and who I am. And they're both important for very different reasons. And I find that bizarre and strange. So anyway, mom was absolutely sure the doctor was my BF. There was no paperwork. If she had died without telling me her story, I'd have always felt like something terrible had happened to her because I would have somehow connected it with Dr. Marsh, the OBGYN, had I done DNA after she had died and saw the connection but I'd have never, ever in a million years believed that she consented to secret artificial insemination. And so I would have always felt like something bad had happened. And I'm grateful that I have that truth, that I don't have to be hurt for her in that regard, because I know a lot of NPEs never get that. They never get that truth. So I'm in the fifth year now, like I've said, since learning I was donor-conceived, and my life and emotions are a lot different from the first couple of years. I'm glad it took this long to do our interview, Lily. We've talked about it for a couple of years now, Mm -hmm. because your list has been wonderfully long, and I am so glad for that. Every story is a piece of the puzzle for me in some way. But if it had been earlier, I'd have just been angry and sad. And I'm glad that that's not where I am now. 
I recently told my remaining maternal aunt and one of my first cousins that I'm close to my story. I hoped maybe they'd be aware of it somehow. Maybe they could provide more answers. They were with me when I was visiting moms in an assisted living now. So we were all four together. And I said all of this and told the story in front of mom. And neither of them knew anything about it. And I haven't told anybody else in mom's family. I don't think I ever will. Uh, It's enough that those two know they are the ones that had anybody been told it would have been information that they had and they don't have it. So I, again, it confirms mom's story. Nothing changed in our relationship with my aunt and my cousin, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I haven't said anything publicly about being uh, my birth father's daughter because I'm still protective of my dad. Uh, I'll always be his daughter, and I don't want to dishonor him in any way, even though he's not here. And there are people that perhaps if they saw it, they would just want to know. And, and I just really don't want to talk about that with them. If they, I guess you know what I mean, Lily. It's one of those that it's just not gossip that I want going on. And I don't want people trying to figure out what happened or anything like that. I'll tell the story, yes, but I don't want to in any way throw shade on my dad. So. Mm-hmm. And so lastly, uh, although life as I knew it is gone, and that took a while to process, I am finally okay with the life I have now. I have some answers. I have peace knowing I'll never have some of the other answers. Some of the people that would provide the answers are dead. And like in mom's case, she can't remember anymore. And all of that's gone. Sometimes I'm sad. Sometimes I'm triggered. Sometimes a piece of the puzzle falls into place and I can celebrate a new piece of medical history or genetic mirroring, like the videos my cousin Rob showed me of my BF. I mean, that was a gift. And I had goosebumps and still do when I think about it. That was such a gift. And I will end this by saying I heard Leanne Hay or read, I don't know which, um, I've read her book, and I can't think of the name of it. Lily, you're going to have to think of it there for me. Oh, yeah, I've got it right here. Let's see here. Yeah, green cover, and it's not right in front of me. (laughs) NPE, A Story Guide for Unexpected DNA Discoveries. Yes, that was the first book that I read on the subject. I ordered it as soon as I learned the term NPE. And I Googled it, and I went to Amazon, and I ordered this. And Leanne's book just hit all of the the spots. It ticked all the boxes for me and was so helpful. And I have listened to her in podcasts and other situations. And somewhere along the way, she quoted this from C.S. Lewis, and it is my truth, too. He said, I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her real name was Grief. And that was it. It's like, that's exactly what I've been going through all these years. It's anger has turned to grief. And now that my anger has a name and I know it's grief, I can deal with the grief. I can can heal from the things that I know and the things that I'll never know. I can accept things through grief where with anger, 
I was just fighting it, but I don't have to do that anymore. So I really appreciated Leanne Hay quoting that and bringing that to my mind because it has helped a lot. I will link her book below in the description for this episode. And I'll also link the Right to Know resource that you brought up as well, if anyone is interested in in checking those resources out. Okay. I have a question about your birth father. So you, no, I'm sorry. This would be about your birth certificate father. And you mentioned he did not know he was sterile. Correct. Yeah. So I know with HIPAA laws in place now, a, a doctor nowadays could not tell. I don't believe they could tell your mother that, you know, another patient was sterile. I'm just one. I mean, obviously, so many things were different and wouldn't be regarded as good practice nowadays. So the doctor told your mother about his test results that he was sterile, but no one ever told him. Is that? That's that is my understanding. And of course, then I've got a million questions that now she can answer and she couldn't answer then. Uh, She had just enough dimension then that she couldn't explain it to me. But I'm like, how did you take sperm to the doctor? Mm -hmm. Uh, I am sure it wasn't the conventional way of, you know, some material in a little jar or cup. Dad wouldn't dad would have wanted to know what was going on. And I don't imagine he would have complied. Mm -hmm. But uh, I suspect that perhaps she had gone in to see the doctor after relations. Uh, I'll, I'll use the old school term and that there were no swimmers when he examined her. Uh, That would be my guess. But she did in fact say the doctor tested dad's sperm and it was sterile. So they had a sample somehow. That makes more sense because I was thinking if he had given a sample, he would probably want to know the results. I I am pretty sure she did all this on the sly Yeah, Uh, because dad would, you know, he was that generation. These World War II guys, I mean, they were all about being men's men and guys, guys, and you have kids and you, you know, yeah. yeah. And if you can't have kids, then something's wrong. Mm. You know, that was, that was just a basic ability. You get married and you have a family and you provide for your family. And I remember, I mean, dad had a lot of health issues um, with the thrombosis. And of course, what we'll never know is because it wasn't tested to see if dad had had anything happen, but did seem that somewhere along the way, when he was alive and we were talking about childhood illnesses, he said he had mumps uh, when he was very young. And I know that that's one that can create sterility, but, you know, perhaps there was something with the thrombosis with his circulation that affected him instead and we'll never know cuz dad didn't go in to be tested mom mom did all this testing without dad's knowledge from everything i could tell yeah like you said your mom she was like a problem solver she yeah she was she was 
So this potential half-sister, I'm, I'm guessing she is your half-sister, the one that surfaced in the 90s and contacted your, your other half-sister, I, I'm wondering why she hasn't shown up in your DNA tests or maybe one of her offspring has, but it's just so far removed. It's showing up as one of those third or fourth cousins that we were talking about earlier that we didn't. That's true. I hadn't thought about that, but I could definitely ask Rob, the cousin I mentioned, to help me look at centimorgans mm-hmm. and maybe do a deep dive uh, on some some of the individuals. It's so hard to do that, but if it's someone that's not on your maternal side and it's not on Rob's mm-hmm. side, maybe right. then it might be from this other, I guess, recipient of yeah, it would have to be someone in the family not connected to the other five brothers and sister. Oh boy, yeah, it gets confusing. I'm not. I just <laughs> want, I have not gotten great with centimorgans, even with all my years of doing this. Me either. You know? And I can look at them and go, "Yeah, let me get the chart." I know yeah. that even the chart, it could be this or it could be that. You know. And yeah, yeah. My mind just kind of explodes at that point, and I yeah. set it down and go do something else. <laughs> yes, and I know DNA angels will for free help you find a birth parent, but if you're trying to connect with like a, you know, like a third cousin or something and trying to move up to a half sibling, they that is not a free service. That requires a little more investigation. I think that's a paid service, but I, okay. I'll link DNA Angels just in case that's helpful to anyone else listening. And I guess the only other thing I have here is if people wanted to reach out to you, could they do that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How is um, the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, if People want to reach out. My email address is J-A-Y-M-A-R-S-H-N-P-E at gmail.com. So J-Marsh-N-P-E, all together, no special characters, at Gmail. And I, I believe the significance of that name would be it has your, your birth father's. It does. My Basically, the nickname for my first initial and my paternal father's name. And then I put the NPE on there so I would know, you know, immediately. These are things I want to answer right now. Yes. (laughs) I want to read. We have donor-conceived community listeners, and I I hope you find uh, find out if you have more half-siblings out there, find more information and... I'm sorry that it got quiet with your your niece and you never heard from your half sister at this at this point in your story anyway. But thank you so much for sharing all of this today. I just I appreciate you coming on so much. Thank you, Lily. I I appreciate the opportunity. I again I appreciate you so much. Um, I can't imagine sometimes how hard this must be for you. And I think of your NPE situation and. You were the first podcast I heard of anything to do with NPEs. And I remember driving in the car and putting on the first episode and just being blown away that here were people telling my story, if you will, and just listening to people explain what had happened to them, how they felt about it. And then all of that helping me know that, you know, this is everything you're going through at the time is normal. 
um, in the most abnormal situation you could probably hope for, but it's it's normal and every bit of that helped. And just hearing your very calming voice <laughs> and laughing sometimes and nodding long. Yeah, I I know people have looked at me in the car as I'm nodding along. <laughs> And wonder what on earth is she doing? But I'm like, okay, I'm just, you know, one of the nodders here sitting and listening and going, yep, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. So thank you. I hope you have many more of these and uh, I appreciate all the time you put into it. You've been a, a leader in this entire area where people you know, if if they know you and they hear your name, they're like, oh, Lily, yes, that you just spent a great influence and a great help. So thank you. These stories are here for us to identify with. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, email npestories at gmail.com. You do not have to give any identifying information. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, I'd like to hear from you. Subscribe to this podcast to hear more. Come heal with us.